The immediate connection of the alpine schist with the strata of the low country is an object which I have long looked for. I may almost say in vain. I expect to have seen it in entering the Grampian Mountains, both by the Amon and the Tay, but I was disappointed in my expectations. I have in like manner looked for it on both sides of the southern mountains of Scotland, and that in several places without receiving any satisfaction on that subject. In the island of Arran, I have sought it carefully without finding it in a place where I had thought it was certain to be found, and I found it in a place where I had not thought almost of looking for it. Loch Resna at the north end of the island is properly within the Alpine Schistos, but in tracing the shore occurs the immediate junction of the inclined strata of Schistos and the other strata, which here appear to be a composition of sandstone and limestone. These strata are equally inclined with the Schistos but in the opposite direction. From this situation of those two different masses of strata, it is evidently impossible that either of them could have been formed originally in that position. I set out on horseback from Loch Resna with the view to search for an exposed junction of the granite and schistos. Upon this road, I observed that the North Sanox River runs nearly in the junction of the schistos and the granite mountains, the characters of which are very distinguishable to view. I then went forward, but in returning I quit my horse and went over the mosses and mirror towards the heads of the North Sanox River. Here I had the satisfaction to find the immediate junction of the schistos where the granite and the solid rock exposed perfectly to view, and that in both of these rivulets a little way above their junction. Nothing can be more evident than that here the schistos have been broken and invaded by the granite. So much exceeded is in the grand and instructive appearance with which nature has adorned this little island. During this expedition to the Isle of Arran, James Hutton had acquired the solid evidence for his theory of the earth. What remained was an appropriate setting for his dramatic narrative. Chris here from the Geology Podcast Network. In this podcast, we tell the amazing stories of geological expeditions of yore. As cliche as Newton's axiom, standing on the shoulders of giants, has become, for geologists, this is especially true. Whether it be the orogenic history responsible for James Hutton's famous unconformity at Sicker Point, or Chaim Ganser's Himalayan expeditions disguised as a Buddhist pilgrim, it is upon their shoulders that we stand to uncover the geologic mysteries around the planet. We will explore the stories of intrepid men and women whose adventures and discoveries put humanity on a course of greater understanding of how our planet works and how the geologic past has shaped our present. Today we have Jana Liebman and Bryant Ware, two fellow geologists from Perth, Australia, who are going to share with us the extraordinary life of James Hutton, a founder of modern geological concepts in this episode of Geological Expeditions of Yore. Take it away, Jana and Bryant. Hello again, this is Jana and Bryant. And we are happy to bring to you another episode of Geologic Expeditions of Yore. Today's episode is on James Hutton, often referred to as the father of modern geology and the first to introduce the notion of deep time. James Hutton was born in 1726 in Edinburgh, Scotland, as one of five siblings. He was educated at the University of Edinburgh 
and the University of Paris where he attended lectures and a variety of subjects. He was a polymath, namely agriculturalist, botanist, chemist, medical doctor, meteorologist, philosopher, and wrote his doctoral thesis on blood circulation. But he was also a farmer. He inherited two farms from his father where he moved to in his late 20s. His farming activities provided ample opportunities to study and consider the implications of erosion to the shaping of the land around him, initiating his interest in geology. In a letter to Sir John Hall, he states that he had become very fond of studying the surface of the earth and was looking with anxious curiosity into every pit or ditch or bed of a river that fell in his way. Over the next years, an idea began to take shape in James Hutton's mind. Could it be that a vast proportion of recent rocks are comprised by materials sourced from the destruction of more ancient rocks? Do rocks therefore preserve a record of their past? And thus do they provide snapshots of an ancient history of change? And if the Earth's history extended far beyond what was widely believed during that time, Hutton questioned with erosion by wind and water and constant force on hills and mountains, should not all the hills and mountains of the world have long ago washed down to the sea? No one before Hutton had asked this central question. Back then, in the 18th century, this idea, which is now known as the concept of deep time, was revolutionary. In James Hutton's day, most people believed that the Earth was only about 6,000 years old, based on biblical evidence. Actually, to be precise, according to the 17th century scholarly analysis of the Bible by Archbishop James Usher of Ireland, the Earth came into creation at 6 p.m. on October 22, 4004 BC. For he said, I deduce that the time from the creation until midnight, January 1st, 1 AD was 4,003 years, 70 days, and 6 hours. On a summer afternoon in June 1788, James Hutton and a group of colleagues launched a boat from the coast near Edinburgh and sailed southeast to study the rock cliffs facing the North Sea. About 50 kilometers east of Edinburgh, they reached Peace Bay with its 200-meter-long beach backed by rock cliffs that rise over 200 meters above the sand. This promontory is the famous Sikar Point. The bottom 15 meters of this outcrop consist of layered gray sandstone and mudstones formed by horizontal sedimentation, but now tilted vertically like books on a shelf. These now vertical layers are topped by a younger generation of horizontal layers of red sandstone and breccia. If you haven't seen photos of Cigar Point, check out the episode notes for links to three articles related to James Hutton, including Cigar Point. It's a true textbook unconformity, which means a gap in the sedimentary record, now known as Hutton's unconformity. Hutton was ecstatic when the group on the sailboat discovered the unconformity at Sikar Point. He had finally found his setting to deliver his dramatic narrative. Drawing on his encyclopedic knowledge of geology he acquired while he had been working on a theory of the Earth, a paper on his hypothesis published three years earlier, he explained to the group what they were looking at. What he described was a vast geological history, a chronology of separate ancient events over unbelievably long expanses of time that led to the formation of the rocks they were seeing today. 
What Hutton provided was the first extended narrative of geohistory, offering a narrative emblematic of the whole of Earth history, the most important component outside of life itself for the grand narrative of cosmic history. Among the group of this expedition was James Hutton's friend John Playfair, a mathematician professor. Like most people at this time, Playfair was highly skeptical of James Hutton's ideas and imbued by the prevailing biblical view of a world that was created roughly 6,000 years earlier. Playfair was astonished by Hutton's narrative and described this mind-blowing experience as follows. We felt ourselves being carried back, an epoch still more remote presented itself. Revolutions still more remote appeared in the distance of this extraordinary perspective. The mind seemed to grow giddy by looking so far into the abyss of time. And while we listened with earnestness and admiration to the philosopher who was now unfolding to us the order and series of these wonderful events, we became sensible how much farther reason may sometimes go than imagination can venture to follow. The description of Sicker Point signaled the first glimpse of deep time, a concept made popular in the 1980s by American writer John McPhee, who said, People think in five generations, two ahead, two behind, with heavy concentration on the one in the middle. Possibly that is tragic, and possibly there is no choice. The human mind may not have evolved enough to be able to comprehend deep time. It may only be able to measure it. Numbers do not seem to work well with regard to deep time. Any number above a couple of thousand years, 50,000, 50 million, will with nearly equal effect awe the imagination to the point of paralysis. Hutton's day, no technique was available to date rocks. Thus, Hutton avoided any use of concrete numbers. Accurate dating of the events Hutton described at Sikar Point would have to wait over a century to be determined. Today we know that events described within Hutton's geonarrative of Sikar Point began at least 440 million years ago and lasted over 100 million years through intervening folding of the Greywacke, sea level changes, erosions, and finally, deposition of the red sandstone. As stated by Barry Wood in Petrotemporality at Sakara Point, James Hutton's deep time narrative, the entire formation at Sakara Point, including the most famous unconformity in the world, is thus an imprint of a collision that brought an end to an ocean and created an ancient continent. The measure of that history was made possible by the ability to determine the age of a rock by measuring the products of radioactive decay. We now know that the Earth is about four and a half billion years old, an incredibly large number and time scale that can be more difficult to grasp in the more relatable spans of hundreds or thousands of years that impact our lived experiences. I think one good way to demonstrate its magnitude is to picture a clock and consider if Earth history had taken place in 24 hours. The Earth forms at midnight from gas and dust in our solar system. The Moon forms at 10 minutes after midnight when Earth collides with another small planet called Theia with roughly the size of Mars. First multicell organisms emerged on the planet between 4 and 5 in the morning. Oxygen accumulates in the Earth's atmosphere around 11.30 a.m. 
This is important for the development of complex life forms like us, as it enables a highly efficient metabolism like ours that requires that we breathe oxygen. The first half of the day and the first half of Earth history is almost over at this time. The first land plants appeared around 9 in the night, followed by the dinosaurs and the first mammals just before 11 p.m. It wasn't until 11.59 p.m., a minute before the end of the day, that the first early humans lived on the Earth. Homo sapiens only have been around for the last five seconds of the day. One of the key concepts Hutton came to is the indication of a vast expanse of time during which present observable processes operating today, barely noticeable to the human eye, yet immense in their impact, are the same processes that operated in the past. These changes that occur uniformly and gradually became known as uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is one of the fundamental principles of Earth science that builds the bedrock of all our interpretations of the Earth's history. Hutton's theories amounted to a frontal attack on a popular contemporary school of thought called catastrophism. Catastrophism was the belief that only natural catastrophes, such as the Great Flood, recounted through the story of Noah and his ark in the Bible, could account for the form and nature of a 6,000-year-old Earth. Within this belief, observed fossils and rock layers were the remains of animals that had perished during the biblical flood. The Great Age of Earth was the first revolutionary concept to emerge from the new science of geology. Unfortunately, he was appreciated by few during his own lifetime. Flood geology continued to dominate the narrative of the Earth's surficial processes into the 19th century. It wasn't until well into the 20th century before a full appreciation of the long-term effects of erosion were realized and the immense depths of ocean-bottom sedimentary rock were discovered through the drilling of deep ocean cores. When the full history of drifting continents was charted and colliding plates were understood as the power that raised the Alps and Andes and Himalayas, Hutton's theory of the restoration of land from ocean-bottom rocks suddenly took on a long, unrecognized elegance. Hutton displayed an amazing ability to use clues gleaned from limited evidence from surface observations and an incredible imagination to reconstruct a remarkable history of Earth's cycles of destruction and renewal. What occurred in the past continued in the present and would continue in the future. Every particle of rock and every grain of sand underfoot had gone through this cycle numerous times. Arthur Holmes, who is considered the most distinguished geologist of the earliest 20th century, said, to the geologists, a rock is a page in the Earth autobiography with a story to unfold. Hutton showed how to read it. Doing so, he disclosed the marvel of deep time. Today, we have come to know that living creatures evolve, that continents drift, that the stars and galaxies are born, mature, grow old, and die. We salute the memory of James Hutton, who opened our minds to these wondrous possibilities. So today we will end the podcast from an excerpt of the end of James Hutton's own Theory of the Earth. 
To sum up the argument, we are certain that all the coasts of present continents are wasted by the sea and constantly wearing away upon the whole. But this operation is so extremely slow that we cannot find a measure of the quantity in order to form an estimate. Therefore, the present continent of the earth, which we consider as in a state of perfection, would, in the natural operations of the globe, require time indefinite for their destruction. The result, therefore, of our present inquiry is that we find no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end. Thanks for listening. And special thanks goes out to Joanne Garten for the music that you heard in the introduction of this episode from her new Scottish folk album, The Bee's Knees. If you enjoyed this episode, it is very helpful when you rate and review the podcast. The Geology Podcast Network is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Editing and music production was done by Michaela Moore. Episodes of the Geology Podcast Network are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.